Welcome to Small Business Big Network, the podcast for small business owners who want big results from their networking. I'm Liz Drury, a freelance voiceover artist who knows that if you're not working, then networking could help. Claire Fuller is a palliative care nurse who now runs a business called Speak For Me and her own podcast, which is all about advanced care planning and end-of-life care. When it comes to networking, Claire has found that the peer support that she's got from her network has been invaluable. Thank you very much for being my guest on the podcast today, Claire. Thank you so much, Liz. It's a real pleasure to be talking with you this morning. Now, you run your own business and you're a podcast host um, all about advanced care planning, which we'll come back to in a minute. But let's talk first about your background. I know you, you've worked as a nurse for a lot of years. How did how did you first get into nursing? That's a, a great question. Is I'm, How I got into it was probably from the age of five years on. So I've never not been a nurse, if that makes <laughs> sense. Um, you know, when you have the careers in careers evenings at school mm. way back and what are you going to be well I'm sorry this is just a waste of time because I'm going to be a nurse yeah um so I was always going to be a nurse it's very much part of my identity um what I specialized in is palliative and end-of-life care so for 30 years my career in nursing has been palliative and end-of-life care um so I've worked in lots and lots of different areas so I've worked in um, the hospices as a specialist nurse um, I worked for something called the Gold Standards Framework, introducing palliative care to, um, or introducing the Gold Standards Framework to the acute hospitals. Mm. Um, I also had the pleasure of working as a, well, I say the pleasure as a CQC specialist advisor. Um, I've gone off track, Liz, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. It's thirty years to try and condense. Now that's a big question. So here's another question. So what was it that attracted you to end of life care? Yeah. So many different things fed into that. So um, I remember vividly after I qualified caring for somebody who was dying Mm. and um, caring for them in the days prior to their death. And it sounds really hard to say, but finding them, finding them dead in a bed Mm. and realising that nobody had been with them, Liz, when they died. Yeah. It was on an acute, busy general ward and I just thought this, this... this isn't right, this isn't how I feel that I'm caring for somebody. And a nurse on the ward was going to work in a hospice, so Mm -hmm. I found out a little bit more, spoke to her, and I just thought that's that's where I want to be. Um, So that that was quite a trigger. Um, I think fundamentally nursing is very much about what we would say holistic care, caring for the whole person, Mm. that's that's what I enjoy doing. And palliative and end-of-life care is, is completely about caring for the whole person. And really for that family as well. So it it just aligned very much to how I felt about caring for people. Yeah. And how different was it working in a hospice environment to working in a hospital? Um, incredibly different. I started working for the hospices way back in 1992, I believe it was, so a long while ago. In some ways, this might sound a bit bonkers, but in some ways it was easier. Mm. So although you were facing death and dying... Um, and the last time, the last weeks of a person's life on a on a day to day on a regular basis, people who came through the doors had often had that really challenging conversation. So in many ways, people would be on the same same page, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a, in a hospital much later in my career, and if, if I was to compare the two, I would often say that every day going into the hospital was like being in the epicenter 
of an explosion mm. being in the absolute epicenter because you would be having the conversations that nobody else had had or that nobody else wanted to have right from point of diagnosis mm. so you may think if you can compare the two that hospices would be a challenge they would be the the really hard places to work mm. but in, in my experience it would be working in that acute setting so you'd be asked to um tell certain news to a family or to children or to be there at the um, when a person was changing from what we would call curative to a palliative approach mm. um, a lot of my work is to say that there, there isn't that sudden tipping scale and we and we walk those two roads side by side mm -hmm. um, in reality but yeah I would say working in in the acute settings for me it was like being in the center of of, of a blast emotionally every mm. day tough tough okay. um, hospices that the whole environment, the whole team was there to support you, to support the person and to support the family as well. Um, in hospitals, you often were a bit of a lone wolf, it felt. Mm. Um, death and dying can be thought, thought of sometimes as a failure in a hospital um, when everything is geared to, to cure. Yeah. But, you know, death is, is, is something that happens to everybody. It is not a medical failure, but how it, fa how it happens can be viewed as a medical failure. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give you a scary, scary fact now, Liz. Mm. Um, in an acute hospital at any one time, um, I could be mean and say have a guess at this, but I won't be mean, <laughs> around about 30% of people in an acute hospital will be in that last year of life at any time. And yeah. that's that's borne out by lots of different stats. So that's quite scary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Quite scary. Yeah. This isn't unusual. End-of-life care is, is, is not a, a, a random specialist topic. This applies to so many people at, at so often. Yeah. But it's something that we tend not to, well, we don't want to think about it, do no, we? <laughs> no, no. We put it off. We put it off. Yeah. And therein lies the problem. Yes, absolutely. Now, I know that you went and did a, a master's degree at the age of 45. I did. What made you do that and what did you learn? Um, I did my um, master's in um, specialist healthcare and obviously with a focus on palliative care. Um, why I did it at 45 was um, when I started nursing way back in 1987, I started my career in nursing. Um, I trained, had the pleasure of training at Guy's. There wasn't the option way back of doing the nursing route, the degree route into mm. nursing. So I, I missed out on that. I think by a, a year or two it, it came in. So I missed the opportunity when I was younger. Um, as I said, I always wanted to be a nurse, but going in via the degree, degree route wasn't something that um, was available. Yeah. Um, and then I married, I had my children quite young, I would say, I, I, before I was 25 and doing, studying and children just, well, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, whether it was easy or harder, I, I actually ended up training, studying at 45, um, the children were slightly older, but still doing their GCSEs and A-levels and it was tough. Um, and I was just thirsty to learn and know more and to really be responsible for, delivering what we would call evidence-based care, mm. um, which obviously was provided by the university education. Um, the first uh, first module I did was, was communication skills, actually. Mm. And at that time, that was um, a fundamental part of the specialist role I was doing um, to, to enhance the communication skills. So that was, that was the first module I did. Liz, it was tough. It took me five years to do the MSc, but um, my goodness, I was proud. Yeah, yeah, well done, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now, I know that you, you were working in a hospital um, when COVID first hit us. How was that experience? Gosh, that was tough. Um, so I was 
It was actually for a community trust. So I was working across a wide-reaching community trust. Um, there were 10 hospitals under that trust um, and multiple community nurses as well. It, it was really a hard time, mm. a really, really hard time. It's, it's almost difficult to talk about in some ways. Um, I had a guilt, a huge guilt, Liz, because I wasn't at that point a hands, what I would call a hands-on nurse. Mm. Um, so I was providing leads for palliative and end-of-life care across the trust. Um, my role was very much in supporting the teams to decipher the, the information that was coming from um, government levels, if you like. Mm -hmm. So what we what what rules were, and they were ever changing rules, yeah. how they applied to the care, um, and also drilling down into the the way that people were dying as well, because death from COVID was very different to to what people have been used to caring for in the past. Yeah. And then I would say a huge, huge part of my work was to support staff that were caring for patients in the most unimaginable, unimaginable circumstances. So a huge part of my role was um, supporting staff as well. Yeah. Very difficult times. Yeah. So at what point did you leave to, to start your own business? So way back um, after, after COVID, um, I for some time have been thinking about starting my own business and there were there's never I don't think one particular trigger is there to the mm. things that we do in life um throughout the 30 years in end-of-life care and palliative end-of-life I've been really aware that the conversations that we ought to have just don't have yeah. don't happen until they're late and you alluded to that because we're just not good at talking yeah. are we yeah um I was also aware of something called I'm sure you've heard of lasting power of attorney yes um yep I'd looked after lots of patients that had intended to do a lasting power of attorney or families spoke and said, oh, my husband meant to, my wife meant to, yeah. but we just didn't get round to it. So I thought, oh, I, I could do that. I'm sure I could do that. Um, so another little trigger. And um, a very practical reason, the children were older. I was able to, to take a, a bit of a leap of faith as well. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it is a bit of a leap of faith growing a business, isn't it? So it was the right time in my life to start a business um, back in 2021 it was I believe now yeah so tell me about what your business does <laughs> um, I do lots of different things I'm still working on that elevator pitch to answer <laughs> that in a quick simple question but um, I've my role has grown and the simplest thing to say is that I'm a advocate educator and coach for advanced care planning you, you can hear the passion that I have for advanced care mm. planning through our all of all of our conversations I think um, so I do, there are lots of strands to the business. Um, so I support organisations that want to improve palliative and end-of-life care. So I bring all the skills that I've gained over 30 years and um, work with organisations that basically want to do it a little bit better. I can do deep dives with them. I can um, review their processes and just support them, um, improve what they do. Um, I also love doing, I suppose a huge passion of mine is providing education. Um, and that's all through, so from members of the public right through to healthcare professionals as well at all levels. So I teach um, lasting power of attorney because, you know what, nobody taught me about mm. what a lasting power of attorney is all throughout that really specialist career. We just had a tick box, has a patient got a lasting power of attorney, yeah. but nobody drilled down to really tell me as a nurse, what did that mean? What did yeah. I need to understand? How did I help people? Um, so I... To, to come back to your original question, I support teams improve palliative and end-of-life care. I provide education around um, 
palliative and end-of-life care and advanced care planning, um, potentially lasting power of attorney, advanced decisions to refuse treatment, communication. Um, I'm also a lasting power of attorney consultant as, as well, mm -hmm. so many different strands to the business. And as you mentioned in your intro, I'm, I'm a podcaster as well. So there are the very broad elements of what, what my business does. Yeah. Oh, huge. I must nearly forget as well. Um, I also support people with their own advanced care planning. So um, we don't have a single universal way of doing it across the country. Mm. So lots of people come to me and I help them put together their own advanced care plan. Yeah. So how should that happen? What In an ideal world, how should advanced care planning happen and, and who should be doing it? That's a great question. I love that. <laughs> in the ideal world, it's something that we would all talk about very comfortably um, just as part of life. You know, you watch films, you watch the news and then you talk to the people around you and say, oh, gosh, I wouldn't want that to happen to me or I would want that to happen mm. to me. So ideally, we'd be talking about it openly and honestly far earlier. Um, I'm going to answer that in three parts. So firstly is, is a broad answer. Uh, answer, talk about it uh, more, mm. talk about it earlier. Um, the second strand to that is to be aware that all illnesses follow um, what we would say a trajectory or a journey. And I said earlier, we don't have a sudden tipping point where you, you suddenly become palliative pa a palliative patient yeah. or you suddenly should start advanced care planning. But right from the beginning of any health condition is a great time to think about advanced care planning, to think about the steps along that journey, the things that you should be doing along that journey not as a sudden thought. Um, and it'd be shocking to say sometimes advanced care planning doesn't start until days before somebody's death, mm. which is just a futile exercise. Yeah. Um, in the ideal world, I would love it if, um, you know, the regular checks we get at GPs, mm -hmm. the regular checks, um, prostate checks for gents, uh, breast screening, cervical screening for ladies, wouldn't that be a great opportunity for asking about advanced care yeah. planning? Um, you asked me how it should happen, and there are lots of elements to it. If um, I'm almost drawing this as we're talking, but advanced <laughs> care planning is based really, on really importantly on what matters most to you. It is as simple as that, Liz. Mm. If, if, we, if I was meeting you as a person or a patient, and I'd just find out what matters most to you, and from that you can be build your advanced care plan. Mm -hmm. So I've got a great infographic which describes it. So I'm going to ask you and listeners <laughs> to imagine that I'm drawing a house. So imagine the house is built on a foundation of what works, what matters most to you. And then imagine some windows within that house. We're going to draw the house. The first window would be to think about the things that you do want, the things that are important to you. And that might be incorporated in something that we call an advanced statement of wishes and preferences. Mm -hmm. And that varies from area to area. The second window that you might like to think about are the things that you don't want to happen to you. And if I was working with you, Liz, and you said, oh, Claire, I wouldn't want that. You know, I, I, I've got a hard line. I know what I would not want. Mm -hmm. I said, OK, let's think about something called an advanced decision to refuse treatment. And that's a legal document which enables you to refuse a specific treatment under a specific circumstance in the future. So mm -hmm. that's the second window. Um the, the third window that I'd draw, and I'm drawing that, I know we can't see each other, but I'm drawing a little picture in the air here, would be who would speak for you. Yeah. And that's, I'd encourage everybody to think in that window, would be to think about a lasting power of attorney. So that enables you to nominate somebody to support you make to make decisions or make decisions on your behalf if you lose capacity in the future. 
And don't forget, you can lose capacity as well as through something like a, a dementia illness. But any one of us could lose capacity at any moment mm. through a sudden accident yeah. or a sudden illness like that COVID. Um, moving to the fourth window, um, I'd encourage people when they think about advanced care planning to think about legacy. So you, it's easy to think about wills and things, isn't it? But mm. our legacy is so much more than that. And it can be the really deep emotional stuff like handcasts that people might leave, um, specific memorial jewellery. It could be letters that you want to leave. Um, Liz, you're a podcast host. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about your podcast legacy? No, not at all. Hadn't crossed my mind. (laughs) There we go. Um, So something called your digital legacy. Mm. You've created an incredible wealth of material with your podcasts. What would happen? Who would um, manage that platform in the event of your death? So digital legacy is something to think about as well. We've all got Twitter, X accounts, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Um, Thinking about your digital legacy is that fourth window. Um, If you imagine a slightly... Middle window in the top, um, and I would call that the end-of-life care window as well. And the advanced care planning towards end-of-life, you can think of in the last year, the last months, or the last days of life. And really all those other windows that I've described, Liz, that work should have already been done as part of everyday life, not just to do with death and dying. But in that last window, there are specific elements to advanced care planning that we would be thinking about, um, potentially things like discussion around cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Mm-hmm. You may have heard DNA CPR, so yeah. having those discussions. Um, towards the later parts of somebody's life, um, we'll be talking about potentially where they wish to be cared for, where they wish to die. And then again, mo- moving towards the later part of somebody's life, have we got everything in place that, for that to happen? So we might need certain medications, certain charts and and to be seen by a doctor on a, on a regular basis as well. So most of those windows, Liz, are, f- are for everybody, aren't they? And mm, just that last mm. window is for end-of-life care. But too often we, we forget all those four windows and try and cram it all in, yeah. in, you know, towards the very end of somebody's life. And it's just too late. It's yeah. too late then. Yeah. So tell me about, about your podcast. How did that come about? The podcast um, is something that I'm incredibly incredibly proud about. Um, And that started, I'd connected with a lady called Claire Fisher, a wonderful woman. Um, Claire Fisher was diagnosed with bowel cancer out of the blue and was faced with a terminal illness. Mm. Um, Claire was very passionate um, about um, supporting people with well-being. And she made it her retirement project to... Um, raise awareness about talking about advanced care planning and um, planning for later life for, for end of life care. Liz Claire was in hospital um, coming up to Christmas in 2021. Um, I'd previously connected with Claire. She'd done um, we'd done some work during an event called Dying Matters, and Claire reached out and said how difficult she found it to be heard for her wishes to be heard. Mm. Um, and I can reconnected with Claire and said, my goodness, if it's difficult for you to be heard, for your advanced care planning wishes to be heard, how much harder would it be for everybody else? Yeah. You know, you're an expert in this, Claire. You've, you've been very public. Um, so I, I connected with Claire and said, my goodness, I feel a podcast coming on. So I <laughs> recorded Claire. Um, it was actually three weeks before she died, Liz. And we spoke about the fact she didn't want to be cared for. Her wishes were not to be in intensive care. What mattered most to her was being at home. Yeah. You remember that what matters most question? Yeah. So what matters most to Claire was being at home. Um, 
and then being with her children or being in an environment that she could be cared for. And she was very clear that plans change and that was okay, you know, yeah. not to set yourself up for something mm-hmm. that... Um, so she didn't want to be in, in, in a specific environment. Um, and we, we spoke about how she planned, how she wished to be heard um, and some of the strategies that she'd, be, she'd used to do her end-of-life care planning. Um, Claire did die in, in a hospice, actually, with, with her family. Um, and that was the, the first recording that I made. Mm. Um, so an incredible story. Um, we spoke about having important conversations about income important conversations and um throughout my career I'd realized that people just didn't understand advanced care planning it wasn't one thing it were these multiple conversations so Claire was the springboard and I think I'm 76 77 episodes in now and each conversation is a different component of advanced care planning to to really highlight it's just not this one thing that you do so yeah 76 conversations in and I'm talking about something different each time yeah Fantastic. So let's have a chat about networking now, which is what you're here for. <laughs> so how, how have you built a, a network for your business? So I would argue that um, all my career has been a natural networking, if, mm. if that makes sense. So um, palliative and end-of-life care is a really supportive role. So I, I have been networking ever since I stepped foot into palliative and end-of-life care Um if you're asking me specifically from, shall I fast forward specifically to my business? Is yeah, your, your current best business. Best? Yeah. So from the current business. So from the current business on, it's um, from 2021. The first toe I dipped, dipped into what I would call formal networking would be with the Kent and Victor Chamber of Commerce. Mm. Um, so I attended their events and... Um, listened to a great chap called Martin Wiskin speak. He had the yep. platform. Yep, you know Martin, I believe. Um, he had the floor for a little while. And um, Martin connected me with me afterwards. We just carried on a conversation. And that was my first step into formal networking, Liz. And Martin went on to become the editor for the podcasts. Ah. So when I interviewed Claire, um, Claire we spoke about a moment ago, mm. I unbelievably did it on a mobile phone, can you believe, as a podcaster? <laughs> And um, Martin has started the the podcasting journey with me and um, that was my first dip into formal networking. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I've always networked. My first dip was through the Kent Invicta Chamber of Commerce. Um, I would argue that my networking has then been very... It's grown organically. So everybody I meet, I don't know about you, I find everybody has connections... And leads to something else. So yes. each time you meet somebody, yeah. you're never quite sure yeah. where it's going to go. Um, so it's, the networking has gone in, in some incredible directions. Um, I've got a few examples that I can share if that mm, would be <laughs> if that would be useful. So I've followed an incredible um, palliative care consultant called Dr. Catherine Mannix. You may have heard her speak on different podcasts. Mm. Catherine Mannix um, connected with some people in Canada, um, the waiting room revolution team. And just because I was such a fan of Catherine Mannix's, I, as you naturally, you follow, you network, mm-hmm. you, you meet other people, don't you? So I attended a webinar that Catherine um, ran with the Canadian, the Canadian team, the waiting room revolution. Um, through that networking, I then linked up with um, the, the Waiting Room Revolution team. So you can almost visualise these dots joining, <laughs> joining, joining. Um, 
that led on to me interviewing the team. That was um, Sian Sao and Sammy Winemaker for, for my podcast. They've interviewed me for their podcast. And it's incredibly exciting to say that um, the people from Canada are now going to be coming to England in May this year to be part of an advanced care planning conference. Oh, brilliant. So I think that's a, such a lovely example of me following Dr Catherine Mannix, following her to, to Canada, um, podcast-wise anyhow, not geographically, <laughs> um, and from there um, connecting with uh, some more great people and from there them coming to England and they're actually coming to England for a, a weekly. So they'll be delivering the Advanced Care, Care Planning Conference with me and then sharing their book in a, in a UK tour as well. So lovely, lovely. That's one example of networking. Um, so ripples, ripples roll out, don't they? Yeah, abs- absolutely. So do, do you go, do you attend formal networking events still now? I have attended other formal network events. Um, I don't attend regular um, formal. I, did, I have did dip my toe into another event. It was... Um, Really interesting, lovely group of people. I'll be really honest with you, I couldn't afford to join. It, it mm. was a national group. It cost quite a lot per event. Yeah. Um, I can see there would be advantages to it. Um, however, it wasn't right for me at that time. Yeah. So I would say that my, my networking is incredibly important to my work. However, it remains very, very informal. Um a really interesting network that developed is what I would call a support network. So mm. as a nurse, you have to I have to revalidate every three years. I have yeah. to show that I develop professionally. You mentioned the masters earlier. And I was a little bit worried about stepping out of the NHS and having support or having peer support and um, enabling me to still grow and learn. And it's been a real surprise, an unexpected bonus. The networking that I found is so supportive um the peer support i've had has been incredible since i've gone solo liz um and i've had the most wonderful people surround me and help me grow and develop professionally you know people that have very kindly given time to feedback to help me grow as a professional um and on personal levels as well my dad was quite poorly um in 20 I, I want to say last year but the year before now um and he, he, people that I hadn't met face to face just people that I've connected with mm. incredibly supportive and I would call that a, a very important network that I have as well yeah absolutely I think that's that's so important when you're when Gosh, you're working yes. by yourself mm-hmm. you know that you have that support from other people who are working in a, a similar environment to you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. invaluable yeah um I've got an, another super example to mm. share with you, um, and it, it brings a lot of things together as well about networking and how important it is to, to make these connections. Um, I've connected with a great woman called Rachel Lancaster. She's also known as the Magnificent Midlife, um, and I guested on her podcast a while back now. And um, connected with Rachel, it was great, great to be a guest. Um, and then I wanted to create a series of podcasts, Liz, about dying at home, mm. what you need to know and how to be prepared. But I'm, I'm a bit of a scaredy cat and I'm no good at talking <laughs> to a blank microphone. I just can't do it. I don't know. Do you do solo podcasts? I'm... Um, I've done a few episodes, but not many. Most have been you know, interviews like this. 
Yeah, they're scary. I find talking to a microphone scary without somebody else there. Um, so Rachel, Rachel and I spoke about this, and Rachel very kindly agreed to be somebody for me to talk with about mm. um, dying at home, what you need to know and how you be prepared. So we broke those down into seven podcasts, and I based those on questions that so many people have asked me over the years. Mm. And I, I just broke those down, and we answered each question one by one, by one, by one, in a series which built, built to a, a great series. Um, really emotionally, somebody that I know quite locally contacted me because they'd been listening to the podcast mm -hmm. and it was, um, it, it, I, I didn't know, but it was helping them care for somebody that, somebody that they, they love very much who yeah. was dying at home. So another example of, of how that networking grows and, and the things that it can lead to. Yeah, like you say, it's the ripples, isn't it? You don't it know where, where they end up. It is, it is. And I'm often reaching out. Um, am I allowed to say Twitter still? I still call it Twitter on X. Yeah, yeah, I still call it Twitter. <laughs> yeah, still reach out on Twitter. And you might say, um, you might either find a question or answer a question. I don't know. I need a translator for X family who lives in and has anybody got an experience. And, mm. and the Twitter family, the Twitter network in palliative end of life care, it's just great. You can shout out with a question, put a hashtag on it, and, and that network comes back to you. It's a fabulous network. Yeah. So one final question, Claire. If people want to find out more about you and your business or your podcast, what is the best place for them to find you? So I'm always contactable on Twitter, which is at ClaireFuller17. Um, I'm always happy to be DM'd any time. You can also contact me directly through the Contact Me button on my business, which is www speakforme.lpa.co.uk Lovely. Well, thank you very much for being my guest. Um, it's a very niche business that you've got, it but is. a very important one, I think. Lovely. And great talking with you this morning, Liz. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Small Business Big Network. If you found this podcast useful, please do rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to share it with the rest of your network too.